Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live, and tonight it is my special honor to welcome our guest, Leroy Kincaid, whose movie, The Last Rite, is being released in one week from today. Uh, I had to tell Leroy before we started how much I just absolutely love this film. Uh, so Leroy, thank you for being our guest. How are you doing tonight? Awesome, buddy. Thank you very much for having me on. A um, little late over here. We're getting close to the witching hour in another 30 minutes or so. So bloody awesome, mate. I'm loving it. Yeah, yeah. It's the best time to do a show, especially a horror show. Now, before we get to the last right, which we have a ton to talk about, uh, you have a story that I find uh, inspiring and takes a lot of guts. All right. You were on the precipice or on, you were right there to a hugely successful wrestling career when you basically just dropped it to pursue your dream of making films. That really impresses me. That takes guts. Uh, I want to hear your story uh, come, coming straight from you and what led you to making this decision. Yeah, so um, for a number of years, I uh, some of the some people that um, may know or may not know, uh, I was a professional wrestler in the UK for probably best part of around, so I say ten to fifteen years, mm-hmm. there or thereabouts, um, and I probably had a good professional run for about ten years. Uh, so I spent a lot of time training and stuff. Started at the age of fifteen, um, I guess, and finally walked to Rio around the age of thirty maybe 29-ish, that sort of age. Um, yeah, it was awesome. What can I say? Uh, loved the sport. Loved every aspect of wanting to uh, go out there and entertain a massive crowd. Um, so I worked from, like, little independent shows from, I guess, the size of, like, I think my first show was around 12 to 20 people max. Wasn't a lot. Okay. And then... Uh, you know, had a massive show uh, where I had a, a huge opportunity with the WWE. I had mm-hmm. a tryout um, and a wrestling match with a guy called Vladimir Kozlov in front of like eighteen to 20,000 people. Um, so the paradox between one having not many and one having a lot was huge. Um, so, yes, yeah, so no, I had a fantastic run. Um, but, you know, long story short, I just fell out of love with, um, I guess you could say, the industry and the sport. Now, um, was filmmaking your true passion from a very young age, or films in general? No, <laughs> I wish I could um, give you the you know the old Spielberg answer and say you know I, when I was a kid I had me eight millimeter or sixteen mil, you know none of that. Um, I come from a, a very modest background. Uh, I wasn't really brought up around. Um, the, the love and art of filmmaking. So uh, I just naturally had a love for horror, though, weirdly. Um, my first memory of ever watching a horror film was probably around the age of five or six, uh, where I watched uh, The Thing. Um, so there's the element where uh, the guy is on the, the bench, he's about to have the shock on his chest, and his head falls off, and it turns into a spider legs thing, like very gruesome awesome thing movie. to see at the age. Classic. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> absolutely fabulous um so i see that at the a very young age and i guess you could say some of that influenced i guess some of my style because i was never really like told oh don't watch that that's for adults i was pretty much allowed to watch whatever i want which was bloody awesome um Same here. i got to see all the yeah, horrible yeah, yeah i totally understand uh yeah me, so me too for me uh my brother, who's nine years older, was my influence in horror. And I, like you, watched my first horror film at five. My first horror film was the original Halloween. So I'm right there with you. I totally understand. Yeah, and that that's an absolute classic as well. Um, I, I i think the thing with, for, for me, I've got a bit of, um, I should say, an old love story with horror films. I love films that sort of end up from the late 70s into the 80s um some of the 90s stuff but there was just a golden era in i think cinema between the 80s i don't know what it was mm-hmm. um if you look at all aspects of cinema comedy action um even some dramas 
had elements of it there. There was just some magic in a lot of films and definitely in horror. Like, you know, Absolutely. 80s was huge mm-hmm. for um, a lot of films that inspire me definitely to this day to want to create stories in a horror sort of universe, you know? So it was horror itself and just not you know, overall movies or filmmaking that drew you into making your own horror movies. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, you um, started out, uh, according to IMDb, you, you did several shorts. Now, The Last Rite is your first uh, full feature-length film. So, yeah. doing all those shorts, uh, do you feel like it gave you the proper experience to do The Last Rite? Um, I would, again, I'd want to say yeah, but... No, uh, making a feature film is is a huge undertaking of work um, that, you know, not a lot of people tend to talk about not necessarily knowing what to do. It's like, can you keep up the persistent attitude to keep on going over one year, two years, three years that we started uh, the last right? So I started penning down the idea um, in 2018 um moving through to now it's like now the film is just about to come out mm-hmm. you know um it's it's a lot of uh of an attitude more than it is just having a skill set you know skill set helps but you know it's a combination of things um so a short film you know you can go on and do in like two or three days get to the edit you can edit it in you know a moderate amount of a couple of weeks you know whereas this is entirely different um you know, because I had to do even like, for example, where it's so independent, you know, a lot of everything was in house. So I had to do a lot of the um, the editing I did, you know, cinematography I did, the writing I did, directing I did, you know, the usual story for most people starting out. But it was two weeks alone, just data wrangling, putting all of the files into order. Oh, yeah. Like it, it, it took extraordinary amount of time yeah i'm an editor editor myself so i know like a a one minute clip can take uh two days to to put together yeah yeah absolutely now uh let's talk about because you wrote produced directed edited this film i mean this is your baby um let's talk about the writing for a little bit Uh, watching this film I see a little bit of you paying tribute to some past horror movies, which I think is great. When you were writing this film, and it's basically a possession story, uh, what was your inspiration to say, okay, this is what I want to write, and this is how I want to do it? What was your initial inspiration for The Last Rite? So, you know, uh, paying homage was very, very important from the get-go um, because the, the films that have inspired me definitely, um, there's two massive ones that inspired me to want to do this um, film. One is The Exorcism of Emily Rose and the other one is Amateurville 2, The Possession. I, um, that is such an under-overlooked movie. I really like The Possession, the second one. I, anyway, I sort of interrupt. I just wanted to say that. Mm. I think it's overlooked. <laughs> Absolutely. it's it, it slips by a lot of people. I, I don't know necessarily why. Um, I know Hollywood had it in, like, what, 2005? I think they released one with, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, I've got his name now. Terrible with names, by the yeah. way. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. Um, yeah, but they, they released, uh, you know, the one around 2005, which was really cool. Um, but... It, it sort of felt like it, it was lacking a little bit of um, the authenticity of what I felt was a very, very one, as you say, overlooked story. But to it also where it was inspired by true events slash story-esque stuff. Um, you know, I felt that there was a little bit of the realism that got, I don't know, lost a little bit in that. So... For me, I'm, I'm someone who, like, I draw a lot of inspiration from the things I love. Um, Amateurville 2 was, you know, was a very big um, 
part of uh, the process because one I wanted to sort of um, get across a vibe of you know the the, the priest that's in number two. Yeah. Um, I, I really wanted to like have a priest that somewhat felt in that sort of space, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so that character alone was a huge inspiration for the story because um, I think it's not necessarily about having the right answers sometimes um, in these types of horror stories, which is more exciting and entertaining then, you know, you instantly know what to do straight away. Yep. Um, I feel like that is another area where I wanted to really sort of put a little bit of a mark on it, um, you know, based around some uh, true events scenarios as well. Um, I, I found that, like, having had some experience with sleep paralysis myself and things that I had been affected by, uh, really helped sort of stay true to the ethos of the story and how I wanted to create that. That's awesome. Now, um, did you have any help with the script when you were writing it, or was it just all you? No, no, it's, it's all myself. Um, I, I, I throw myself with my OCD. I throw myself That's literally. another thing we have in common. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate. I am... I cannot tell you how obsessive I am about stuff um, it's to the point of where I don't really sleep. Like, you know, I, I have a company called nocturnal pictures. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a coincidence. Like, you know, 3am now, well, we're nearly 3am quarter to three in the morning. Yeah. It's like, this is my golden hour. I'm, I'm, I can still work for another three, four hours. That's, yeah. that's me. Were, yeah. <laughs> my bedtime's at so five. I'm, in the morning right it I, I mean some people might find it odd but like i just don't know there's just something about um the creative energy at night that i literally just absolutely love i don't know if it's because the world becomes more silent yeah. and there's a lot more just energy around mm -hmm. that just isn't around and is taken up in the day um i agree for me hey, the night time no. when i step outside at two three o'clock in the morning and everybody's asleep i don't know it's just like uh you sense you see the world differently while everyone else is sleeping and i i totally and people who are not night owls they they don't really understand what you're describing i totally understand it because i'm the same way but it's hard to uh to put it into words you actually have to live it and and not force yourself to stay awake that's not going to work but if you just are up at that time of night it's just a world you view it from a completely different set of eyes yeah yeah i, I mean I, I like to describe um the night as like walking in to a void of space now if you walk into like a normal day, like obviously everyone walks into a normal day, you come out of the house, you walk out, you hear cars, you hear birds, you hear, you know, maybe a dog barking, like the normal stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, at a certain point at night, things very, 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 very much quieten down. And something quite tranquil about that as an experience, um, I draw a lot on, on, on things that stimulate me in a very different way. Because I think the void of things is sometimes, if you look a little deeper, you can sort of see beauty in that, yeah. you know. So if you reflect back to like when we had the massive lockdowns of 2020, mm -hmm. if you went out in the day, you know, if you were allowed to go outside and walk, it was like deathly silent. But there was something quite beautiful about just hearing birds that you don't normally hear, you know, and seeing wildlife yeah. you wouldn't normally see. Um, and so I find that for, for me that utilizing that space and that time where not a lot of people are around, just, you know, I, I don't know, it just, I find it invigorating and enriches my soul. I guess, absolutely. Absolutely. Now you mentioned that, um, it was years. Uh, so how long exactly was it from the time you started writing the script till you were done with post-production? So... We began, I began writing, penning down the idea, um, I'd say around September, no, no August uh, 2018. Okay. Um, so, so I had a, a loose idea, let's say. 
Um, and then we went from then all the way to, well, I guess you could say early this year, uh, January, February time was at the point where we'd, we'd had an edit in 2020. Uh, we had some feedback on that. I, I understood what the, the vibe was that I'd spent a tiny bit too much time on certain areas of the story. So I went back to, to killing the baby a bit more, mm-hmm. um, took out a further 15 minutes of the movie, um, and we ended up with what we've got now. So I'd say from August 2018 through to January, February um, okay. 2021. And so was yeah. this, so you actually shot this during the COVID lockdown period. Is that accurate? No, no, just before. Oh, so we sh- lucky. Yeah, yeah. Just before. So we caught it like, what is it? We shot in 2019, September. Mm-hmm. We've done a tiny bit of filming in October, but it was wrapped in and around that time frame. Um, we, we had, what, 14 locations and shot over a period of about six weeks, maybe a tiny bit more, but we had a solid block of a month and then we had a few days either side of that month um, where we were able to shoot everything so let me, in the house. So let me ask you, uh, did you cut this film entirely by yourself or did you have help? No, every, everything that, that is on the, on the film, uh, was done entirely by myself apart from, uh, there was a little bit of mixing that was done and, uh, sound design. Um, there was areas of sound design that I, that I had a hand in as well. Um, and the score was done by someone else, but color grading, um, there was one or two VFX plates that was done by someone else. Okay. Cause uh, I was about to say, of... there's some pretty nice, uh, VFX scenes in there. And I was curious if you did that yourself or if you brought in another company for the VFX. Yeah. So there's a couple of moments there where there's uh, a VFX one. There's one main one, mm-hmm. um, it, it, where 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 the nens in the spot there? Um, there's one main one there, and there was another one in the woodlands, which was just actually replacement of things outside of that. Um, most things were done practically. If there was anything else um, that 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 was in there, I've yeah, they, there wasn't really a lot of VFX. A lot of the VFX that we had to do was on areas you wouldn't necessarily think yeah. that there was, you know? So like there's, for example, there's the main scene of the film. And because of the way that I had to light it, I had to try and light it in a way which really got across the story. But at the same time, there was a silver bed frame mm-hmm. and that silver bed frame reflects light. And I could see the light on the bed frame. So I was like, oh, no, I've got to rotoscope it all out. And it took me about two weeks of rotoscoping all of the the entire scene, you know, the the main scene. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to say too too much. But the main uh, scene, what the film is about, where she's on the bed there, if you look at that whole entire scene, virtually every aspect of that entire bit, I had to literally frame by frame go in manually and cut out the light and that is um, for people who don't know extremely time consuming <laughs> yes um I, and i did try it with the after effects tool yeah the after effects tool doesn't work very effectively on everything no um fine details you're lost exactly Game over. exactly <laughs> and the way i like to describe the last right Uh, It is the perfect example that you can make an absolutely amazing film uh, on a moderate budget as long as you have a good story, uh, a good director, and you put the right people in front of the camera. And when I say the right people, I'm not talking about big A-lister or Hollywood names. I mean, people that can bring to life your vision for the story and that's exactly what you did here so that's how i classify the last right and i've had numerous discussions with a lot of filmmakers and you know we both say it back and forth a good movie is not determined by the budget okay a good because how many times have we seen these big hollywood 
like nine figure plus, sorry, 10, 11 figure movies that are just a big bomb, you know? A good story, acting is what's essential. So let's go to the acting. When you um, cast the parts for Lucy, Ben, and Father Roberts, uh, was that a difficult process? Did you go through a lot of people before settling on those three? Weirdly, um, there was a, a little bit of a process, but it wasn't massive. You know, like one of the other roles was so much more difficult to cast. You, you wouldn't believe it. Like um, the, the character Ellie mm-hmm. um, in there, which is like, um, you know, for the audience that doesn't know, is like Lucy's close friend. friend. Yeah, yeah, friend. In, in the story, that was one of the most difficult roles to cast. There was nobody around that I felt matched the energy that Ellie had as a character. Um, you know, I, I called her bubbles of the story mm-hmm. um, because there was like just... It was just a, more of a lighter vibe with her than there was some of the other characters. Um, but finding someone that could do the nuances of that character without blowing it completely in a direction where it was not going the right way or just people was on the right fit, uh, that character was quite difficult to cast. Um, That's surprising. Lucy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it surprised us because... Because she wasn't really, she wasn't really involved as heavily as all the other characters. Mm-hmm. So we thought, you know, a number of days. It wasn't like, you know, like Lucy and Ben, and uh, definitely Father Roberts. You know, those characters were on a lot of the days. Whereas, um, you know, Ellie had a few days, but just trying to get someone to really like match that was was difficult. She was the last person we ended up casting. Um, wow. as as a character. Uh, So I want to talk about Ben's character for a little bit. Of course, we're not going to give away any spoilers here, but (laughs) Ben is a, um, is a character that you don't root for. If you're watching this film as, you know, as an audience member, Uh, what was uh, your thinking, your inspiration, whatever you want to call it, for making Ben's character the way that you made him in the movie? So for Ben, what was very important was to highlight sometimes us as men, um, our issues that we have when addressing a relationship. Um, The problem is we're too headstrong at times. It's good. It serves a very good purpose, you know, definitely in business. It's sometimes you've got to be ruthless. Mm -hmm. There's never... Uh, easy time to make a tough decision but also sometimes we can be our own worst enemies Absolutely. you know we we need sometimes a, a feminine touch to help ground us a bit and give us mm-hmm. a, a little bit of light you know it's not just about brawn and being strong it's sometimes about like you know knowing how to accept the embrace so for me that character was where he come from he was a, he's a very busy guy in his life he has a goal, wants to achieve good things, um, you know, likes, you know, things in life, you know, it's like he's just a, a well-to-do guy that's not overly flamboyant. Yeah, and but he's, if he can't see it, it's not there. It doesn't exist, mm, type of character. Yeah. Yeah, black's black, white's white, yeah. simple as that. Um, he's got his day, he likes his day, don't rock his day. That's pretty much where he is. Um, there were some elements of the character, unfortunately, we had to strip back out of the, the, the telling of the story um, just for time. I, I, you know, I sort of hated it. But at the same time, I, I understood uh, where these gaps were that needed to not need to be shown. Like, you know, does it help the story? No, not really. Let me cut it out. Why is it in there? It's character development, sweet. But, you know, sometimes it's like as, as a writer and director, it's. The, the things that I have to make sure I maintain when I work on things is not ride my ego into the story mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, tell the story for the character, not my ego. Gotcha. So I, I absolutely learn. I'm, I'm not avert to, like, cutting. I sort of weirdly love cutting stuff out um, more than I like keeping it in. Were you happy uh, when you saw the final cut of the film 
the way that Ben came across to the will come across to the audience? Um, I would say there was there's just little moments that made the side of his nature a little bit harder than I wanted. If I'll be honest, I'll be honest about that. But the sacrifice was that if I try to get across a balanced aspect of it, one of the issues with that was I couldn't just add a moment because the moment needed the next moment that made sense to the previous moment, which meant rather than it being like, you know, the, the time, the running time that it is, I would have had to add probably about an additional seven plus minutes mm -hmm. back into the film. Um, and sometimes those things can hurt the movie more than keep the movie strong, you know, gotcha. because you're trying to highlight an area of a character rather than keeping your audience engaged to the point of where it's at a point where you don't lose the audience. But I feel if it was any longer in some of those areas, it, it we just don't need to be listening to everything. So let's move the story forward. So I made this decision to do that. Um, now, uh, the actor who plays Ben, Johnny Fleming, uh, when you casted him and he read the, the script, did you have to work with him? Did he have questions as to why Ben is the way he is that you had to explain to him? Yeah, yeah. So he was like, you know, he's like, oh, he's very, very tough. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, this is his nature, though. I'm like, there's a reason why the slug line reads Ben's house and not house. Yeah. There's a reason why things start with Ben, you know, on the landing and stuff like that. It's like all of these paintings that are in the house um, that were what one were originally created by a local artist, by the way. <laughs> Um, which is really awesome. Like we had a local artist, sorry to segue. Um, and he was like, so eager to get on the project. He literally painted all these original paintings out like 20 different paintings for the wow. house to, to create the look. Um, so it made it even a little bit more authentic that the paintings that were on the wall were actually real authentic paintings. Mm -hmm. So I, I sort of said to uh, Johnny, I was like, well, you've got to think of this character as he's a guy who knows what he wants and he gets what he wants. So people that tend to be like that tend to just be like that. Mm -hmm. Like there's no, there's no um, champagne and parties unless it's on their terms, how they want it, when they want it, you know? Yes. So, so for me, it was very important for the dynamic of their relationship that in his brute mentality and strength that Lucy actually, even though vulnerable, she also added a vibe of strength to him and in a way that he didn't realize. And at the point when he realized it, it's too late. It is. Yeah. You know? Um, so it's almost like it served in a really as weird aspect way to keep him the harder nail than necessarily making him have all of this dynamic of personality that I, the vibe of it that I had before. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so like in a way for me with Ben, I feel absolutely like thankful that we got Johnny because I feel like he was the, um, the, the right fit for the role. Um, he absolutely, um, you know, done, a, done an excellent job oh, on bringing yeah. the, the vibe of the character that I saw to life. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, yeah, when you're yeah. watching a character and they're meant not to be likable and you just walk away, ooh, just aggravated with them. The actor did a fantastic job at doing, playing the role. Mm. And that's exactly yeah, that's what Johnny brought to The Last Rite. Now, let's talk about Lucy, the main, the lead actress in this film. It's all about Lucy. Uh, a more multi-dimensional complicated character than ben um she has a lot of layers that we discover as the film progresses um when you were creating the character of lucy what was your thought process as to how you were going to unveil 
uh, her and her background as the film went along? So for me with Lucy, the, the, the biggest, um, the biggest thing that I had to focus on before I started adding too much dialogue and other bits and pieces to the story was that this character has to come from a place of sheer vulnerability by circumstance. So she can't help the way she is because of the way she was brought up. So there's areas of the subtext there that had to make its way from the start point through to the end point, And they cause her to make certain decisions, to make certain actions, to decide to not to decide in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was really important for, for her as a character before I even really got writing terribly too much. Uh, what I found as I started creating her and there was more layers and layers and layers, it's like what I found was her weakness was ultimately her ability to just not say actually what she felt. Mm -hmm. And therefore it kept her more of a, a prisoner. But for me, I try to use as much real life uh, experience as possible because I think that a lot of the time as people, what we do is we hope people pick up signals of what we really mean versus what we actually say yeah. because we're in, in fear of upsetting people, Rejection. not making people, yeah, not pay, making people feel comfortable yeah. and stuff like that. And sometimes what we should say is just say, right, I'm not fucking happy about this, blah, 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 blah. And it's done. Exactly. Where, where part of this was really for me was like one of her core wounds that kept her, um, in a state of of things so when she does get the courage to take action um it's like the action taken if when you when you go back through the story if you have another watch of it usually anytime she goes to do something you know things either get better or worse mm -hmm. but it does one of the two every time so I don't want to give it away because just in case your audience. I know, I know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of tricky to um, walk this landmine of something that has not been released yet, but to give information to entice the viewers to watch it, but also not give any stuff away. Uh, Lucy yeah. is a, just a very multi-layered, and through acts one and two of the film, you just want to shake Lucy and say, "Stand up for yourself." Mm -hmm. You don't have to be treated this way, you know, stand up. Is that what you were shooting for? Yeah, the, the whole way through that, yeah. Because I think, again, coming back to the male and female thing, like between men and women, you know, we, we have a wonderful synergy in how we can work together. If one's too headstrong for the other, and very domineering mm -hmm. as, a, as a personality, you tend to find a victim scenario starts to happen. Absolutely. So what I wanted to really do with the, with the, with the truth of this story, you know, like I, I made a very, very, very important conscious decision when I wrote this film. Um, it will be the only one I'll write in this sort of vein with this sort of vibe because I had to get this longer narrative out. That was, I didn't want to write a film absolutely littered with jump scares yeah. in this space. Like, so for, for, for me, it was really important that the story was the thing that I was serving and not a mechanism to just... Scare people. To, to just do stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, as, a, as a horror fan, like, one of the worst things that I find is when I know the film's predictability by... Yeah, okay, and jump, and jump, and jump. Gotcha. It's like, mm -hmm. we, you know, if, if you look back to the films I was talking about earlier on, like The Thing, I go to Aliens even, you know, these are films that, like, have a legacy to this day. People still watch them and are, like, in awe. Yeah. They, they weren't littered with jump scares. No. You cared about the characters. The characters had a mind of their own. They weren't there to just serve a plot point of the story. They were involved with the story, you know, and for me, it's so important and that, that that is what really ultimately happens yeah. and happened in the last right. Exactly. So, 
so for me, keeping Lucy engaged is like part of her growth is at the point in time when she starts to go for something. She starts to try and step out of her zone. You know, it's like, do things get better or worse when she does it? You know, and it's like, as we, it's quite difficult to not, to, to filter everything. I'm trying to not give much away. But it, yeah, for me, it was just very important keeping her um, as somebody that gradually grew through the story, even though in if you think of a world of things, you know, sometimes the bad guys win. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So now yeah, keeping. Yeah, I totally understand. And I think you did it brilliantly. And uh, Bethan, that is how you pronounce her name, right? Beth, she yeah. did a wonderful job portraying Lucy. Now, let's talk. This is a paranormal movie, supernatural, whatever you want to call it, ghost film. I like the term paranormal. Now, when it came to creating the entity, not when you were putting it on paper. I'm talking about the visual representation that you were going to show us on screen. Uh, it's very tricky because we have thousands of paranormal movies out there where we see the entities displayed in all sorts of different ways and manners. Uh, what was your driving force to present them I'm not going to give it away the way you did. Um, I would say for some real life. How, how is that? Like as someone who had uh, a, a, an affliction of some sort years ago, mm -hmm. you know, you see a shadow in the room. That's it. You, you know, it. it's not like a fancy spook flying through a window and no. going, it, it's, literally like a shadow with presence that resonates with the feeling and you see it mm -hmm. and it's like you acknowledge the fact you've seen it it's seen you what do you do like freeze you, you know you you have to channel the emotions and you don't know where it's going to go and whatever and then boom yeah for me it was very much like that um i i wanted to keep the real life stuff real life you know, um, if you look at psychotic breaks and psychotic behaviors of people um, who would maybe be afflicted by a demon and think they're possessed, you know, there's a, a scientific theory that it's just a mental disorder. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it could be the case, but then there are probably going to be a few cases out there out of hundreds that may be a little bit more to it than just someone having a mental breakdown. Absolutely. Um, so for that person, it's very real in their world. So that I really wanted to highlight in the story. Um, for the, the shadow figures, an entity, uh, let's say, like that was really important that that wasn't CG. That was all oh. what you see is what you see. Um, and I was trying to not, you know, I, we, we didn't have the budget to like be fancy. We didn't have the budget to. But do that, like so. you said, the way you did it, it was much more realistic. I mean, we've seen movies where demonic entities are displayed with horns and goat's feet, hooves, and long fingernails. But the way that you presented it to us in the last rite is more authentic, more real where it is just a, a shadow, and a shadow can be anything. You don't know what that shadow is, what it represents, what its motivations are. Um, yeah. And I love the fact that uh, the entity in this film is, I don't want to give anything away, but is attached to a person rather than a place. So mm, what do you, yeah. I mean, what do you feel about yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, yeah, you know, this is a, this is a such a beautiful. Yeah, subject. I know it's um, kind of tricky to talk about it. it. it, it, it it's great. <laughs> so, like, uh, probably some people go, "As he knows quite so much about this sort of stuff." Well, years ago, I used to do paranormal investigation. Um, years ago, uh, about 2010, I was heavily into paranormal uh, investigation. Weirdly, uh, used to go to locations, look for all sorts of stuff, and used to talk to people about um, demonic affliction and affection on people and weirdly you find sometimes you get spiritual attachment 
which is more to do with the individual mm -hmm. than it is to do with a house yeah. or a land or whatever. So if you, some people naturally through their life, um, I would be one, uh, are more empaths so they can channel energy. Some have maybe clairvoyance, some can see things, but others have the ability to feel more and not feeling from an emotional state, but connecting to people With on a feeling-based yeah. energy. Yeah. yeah. So those types of people are very much like a, think of them like a bright light in a very dark tunnel. Mm -hmm. Now, when energy connects itself, be it demonic energy, be it any energy of any sort, and, you know, there's some light and dark people in this earth. Like, you know, some people are very negative, mm -hmm. um, but not, negative in like oh i've had a bad day yeah. the energy is just dark negative and then you've got other people that are just like sunshine and rainbows mm -hmm. now the energy that's attached to some of those people could be just psychotic or if it's more than that i find sometimes when any time i've done the research it's usually the attachment of things can leap from people to people and you know when you've been around what they call energy vampires and you're sucked like dry and you're like, oh my God, you know, you feel knackered, you, your energy's low, you don't have any ability to sort of be able to process too much, you just want to go home and sleep. Yeah. There's a reason for that, you know, because you've been around uh, an environment or an energy that's ultimately taken away some of your light, mm -hmm. you know. So if it works like that with just being around people, you know, yeah. if, if there's, you know, dark energy there that's trying to attach itself to people, it's very much going to gonna happen. Absolutely. So what I did with the story is look at it from a way that's based in real life uh, or, or accounts of real life um, affliction and depression on people. Um, because it's it's a story I hold quite close to my heart because I've had some experiences myself. So. Yeah, and I... I, yeah. I you know, if you're willing to share, it sounds like your days of uh, invest being a paranormal investigator and some of your personal experiences, uh, you really use that. And finding this out for me the for the first time makes a lot of sense as to what made this film seem really authentic, real, and so damn good. Uh, because you, this is not somebody who's just using their creative imagination, no matter how good they are, uh, you know, writing, creativity, and whatnot, you have personal experience. Uh, how much did that really help you to putting this script and this film together? Well, it, it was really like the intensity of how it was birthed. Um, because if I say how the story came to me, right, so uh, I weirdly don't write like probably normal people should. So what I do is I find that I, I there's a part of my creative mind, be that at night or any time, where I find that I just switch on and I channel, I guess you could say, energy. Right? Mm -hmm. It could be an idea. It could be, could be anything. Now, weirdly, I had an image in my head before I started writing this film. I had an image in my head of a man stood on a, um, a landing by a door mm -hmm. in a fedora hat, which is just literally a silhouette. Um, I'd have to try and dig out the, I've got an old, an old picture. I've still got it somewhere. I have to try and find it and send it to you. Um, but I had this image in my head for a while. So, so strong that I had to draw it and I didn't know why I had it, but it was there. So I left it for like two weeks and it was just in my head, like as a, you know, I kept seeing this guy, you know, there's photo frames around in the wall. I knew there was things on the wall that were very relevant to whatever this was. And then all of a sudden I was like, that's what it is. I should tell this story in a way which involves areas of the truth of my experience with sleep paralysis and night terrors and place that in a world with some of the research I've done where it's like a created story that takes place fully inspired by real life stuff. Yeah. Like my story included. So 
by doing that, what I wanted to do was the atmosphere was probably the most important aspect of the telling of this story to exist. Uh, because it was about, you know, when you wake up having had a sleep paralysis episode, it's not like you just wake up and all of a sudden it's all cool. Yeah, no. Because there's a feeling usually associated with that. It can be severe fear, absolute dread. You know, it doesn't. you don't always see something in the room either. But there are odd occasions when something is there, mm-hmm. where it feels like something is there. So what I did was I wanted to use what I remember from my experiences and place that into the story. So, you know, I could talk about this. So there's a moment where things are happening and there's just a shot of, there's like the bust. Do you know the the little bust figurine? Well, things become distorted when you're in this state, weirdly. Like, things feel a lot more menacing. So the atmosphere is already tense. So what I do is I try to use the space, the void of space, the the aloneness, vulnerability in that time. Even though it's only short in the film, I use it to the best of my ability from my experience to just put as much as I can into the into the film. Wow. Um, to keep it authentic. That's amazing. You know, so that's, that's amazing. Uh, I got to ask you for your opinion on something. Now, sleep paralysis is a medically recognized disorder, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. Now, a lot of people, almost every sleep paralysis story that people tell, they tell it like what you just described. There's something there with them, something really negative. Do you believe the medical explanation, your your mind is awake but your body's asleep which is sort of the medical definition of sleep paralysis or do you believe there's more of a paranormal uh element to it that's just not describable yeah it's probably a combination of both um i i would say scientifically that for me science is always proving and disproving itself Mm -hmm. um You know, like there's a science study that proves that apparently consciousness exists outside of the brain. Mm -hmm. So people with like flat, flatline brain dead, you know, on the the anagram or whatever it is where they they look for brain waves. Basically, like, you know, people have come back from the dead and had a correlation of recognition of all sorts of stuff that they shouldn't have had. Out of body experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was zero activity in the brain. So it's like, well, if that can be said for that, then when people wake up in this heightened state, when you look at like people that take DMT and do the ayahuasca trips, you know, what what are they unlocking potentially mm-hmm. that we may not be able to see because of conditioning and programming of the mind? So when it, when we look at like a sleep paralysis episode, you know, there's a few things you've got to sort of look at. Like, firstly, is not to just jump to the first conclusion that, oh, my God, there's something in the room and it's going to attack me. Yeah. But then it's, it, it's really about, I would say, the end of how the result comes from that. So is it something that happens once or is it something that continues to happen? If it continues to happen, what are the conditions that it happens under? Is it like in a new place? Is it so, for example, if every time you stayed around somebody's house that's unfamiliar territory to you and you had it, it could be very possible that it could be an anxiety or a fear of staying in a new space. Mm -hmm. It could be. But if it's not the case and it's just random, you know, there there has to come a point where we've got to not try and look at things purely on a scientific base. Because if you look at like, describe what love is you know like people can't describe love people go above and beyond for love yeah it's a feeling right but we can't really quantify it even though people do mad stuff for it you know like think of it like this i I, you know i made a film for three years in the last riot didn't get paid a single penny for three years (laughs) just i actually spent my money 
and my producer's money to make this happen. Mm -hmm. It's like, but I love it. But some people would go, I couldn't think of anything bloody worse. Mm. So if we look at like the human condition of love and the emotional states of who we are and how we are, whenever, when any time someone has an episode of sleep paralysis, I think you just have to analyze it and not look at it like it is definitely something but also at the same time don't just rule it out like it's not something because everybody's experience some are similar and then some are very different absolutely uh, don't write it off as oh sleep, okay yeah. that's it you're done you're just this forget about it or you know try to get it out of your mind that's discounting whoever it is you know because like you said it could be one out of two or three hundred where if you actually sit as a medical professional and listen to their story and really listen to what they're saying, you might see that there is something that is just not quite right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you, you know, like with my particular story, it, it, it's somewhat different to, to most. Um, like when... When I knew that I was having this episode, I actually had gone for a good part of my life without knowing I'd had it. So oh. it wasn't like, oh, I remember having this all the time, blah, 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 blah. It was actually a suppressed memory for me. Wow. It was deeply suppressed. And I went from, you know, so this happened a lot as a child. So there was things that you know, I guess I was doing as a child that was just different, you know, like Cole in the Sixth Sense mm -hmm. where he had like a little church where he used to go in. Mm -hmm. Well, I used to never like to be able to see, like I used to like my eyes covered. So for a long time, I'd have things covering my face, things covering my head because I just didn't like to see. Yeah. Now, it's just a quirk as a child, whatever. Yeah. I grew up, went teenage years and all of that. And... I was watching um, a documentary called The Entity, um, not the film The Entity, mm -hmm. but um, a documentary in, like, based on accounts of people who had sleep paralysis, night terrors. So I'm watching this documentary. So I'm the age of like 19 at this point. Uh, so, you know, gone through secondary school, gone through my life with just, you know, doing bits, whatever. And something hit me when I was watching this documentary, right? So, like walking into a candy store or uh, an old bakery or something and you buy an old donut and you buy something specific that you would have had as a child and you eat it, the smell unlocks a memory that you remember all of a sudden you're, you're with your grandparents, you're around a table, you're here, you're there in your mind because you're like, damn, I remember that. Yeah. And I haven't had this for so long, I can remember everything about it. Yeah. Well, this happened when I watched this documentary, right? So I had all of these suppressed memories, you know, which are, I guess, a protection mechanism from going through whatever I was going through, which unlocked all sorts of stuff. The sleep paralysis was part of it, but there were other things as well that, that I'd blocked out over the years. And, you know, for want of a better word, it was quite horrific to to relive it mentally and feel like i'd had a part of my life actually installed in my head that i didn't know i had wow like th that was quite a trip I can imagine. um and and you know I'm, I'm someone i don't drink don't never done drugs never done none of that and it as at that point in my life i was really like shook by it because i didn't know how to articulate all of these new memories that i had like it was like a brain dump yeah. of experience. And it all just got unlocked at once. All at once. Wow. So Wow, that is a fascinating story. Uh, wow, I can't... We're out of time. Uh, moving... Oh. <laughs> I, I want to ask you one more question. Uh, yeah. I feel like we could go on talking for hours. Um, moving forward in your filmmaking career because you have so much experience in the paranormal field, uh, I assume you want to pursue and continue making uh, horror movies in the paranormal subgenre. Is that accurate? 
would I make more in the subgenre? Yeah, I'd make more for sure. Um, it's not my next my next projects that I've wrote. So I've got two other feature scripts that I've wrote. Um, one was wrote before the last write, uh, and one I've not long finished. Um, one's like Aliens meets Twenty Eight Days Later. Okay. It's in that sort of space. The other one is uh, Strangers meets uh, I Spit on Your Grave. It's in that sort of space. Nice. Um, no longer paranormal, but you know I do. Lo I love this subject. So me too. Uh, for me, I would definitely do another uh, paranormal film. Um, one that I feel I could serve for sure. But and, uh, at your core, you're a hardcore horror fan, and that's what's yeah. That's what that's what motivates you. That's what fires you up, and that's uh, that's a passion, and that that's a beautiful passion because as we all know. Horror fans are very loyal. They're the best mm -hmm. fans in the world. I have no doubt in my mind that The Last Rite is going to be a huge success. And to take it even a step further, I would definitely put it in the top five or ten of the best horror movies of 2021. Oh, man. Thank you very much. I'm not just saying That's that. I, I, really if you watch all my... I, I don't say that and i'm saying that the last right and for me i would definitely put it either in the top five or top ten and you did a brilliant job guys uh the movie's coming out a week from today please leroy let our audience know where they can watch it one week from today so as far as i'm aware one week from today um it's going to be on most of the main video on demand platforms out in the states um, you guys have some different things there that we don't have necessarily here in the UK. So our UK fans are not going to be able to see it, but you guys out there will be able to watch it. Um, I believe it's on iTunes. So um, it'll be like on Amazon, Voodoo, iTunes, all of them. Yeah. People can rent, buy it. I recommend it, guys. You are not going to be disappointed. This movie is great. It has a great blend of some... Uh, the normal stuff that we've seen in Paranormal Chopes, but it blended in nicely with some stuff you've never seen before. All put together with a great story. Leroy, you did a fantastic job on your first feature film. Uh, I wish you all the success. I think this film is going to be hugely successful. Uh, and in today's world, as we know, it's all by word of mouth, really. you got your marketing, you got your advertising, but ultimately, it's one horror fan talking to their friend horror fan, and the word will spread, and you did a great job. Thank you so much for coming on our show and sharing all these great stories with us. Are there any final thoughts you want to share before we go? Um, yeah, I just, just one. Uh, for anybody who's interested in um, part of the story I was sharing on my episodes with sleep paralysis and all that, if... You go um, to Nocturnal Pictures YouTube channel um, on there. So Nocturnal Pictures is the company that. Um, it's your you know, production made company. Last, yeah, we made the last right with. It's my production company. Um, there's like a little piece on there about ten minutes where, when we first started the project, I talk about in detail about what I saw um, in my episodes of my night terrors and stuff. I'll so if people are interested, they can. Check out some of that. I'm going to check um, it but out. I've, I've, yeah, ch check it out. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen Did it yet. It? I don't know. No, I'm going to go oh, check right. it out after to, after our show tonight. And that's yeah, on man. your YouTube channel, which is called Nocturnal Pictures? Yep, Nocturnal Pictures on YouTube. Um, if you just type that in, you, you'll you'll, you'll find it through that. Um, and the other thing is, is like, I just leave everyone with is like, you know, my ethos in my work works on the basis of light loses its relevance without darkness. We cannot have good without evil and evil without good. Absolutely. So what I want to do in the horror space is ultimately create, um, create something that's very memorable. Absolutely. And you did that with the last ride and I'm looking forward to the stuff you're going to create beyond the last ride because you're a great director, you're a great writer and I'm just really looking forward uh, to seeing what else you're going to bring us in the years to come. Thank you so much, Leroy, for being our guest. Thank you to all our fans who tuned in for this incredible interview. 
Have a great weekend. Until next time, on behalf of Leroy Kincaid and myself, stay safe. And remember, always stay walking. Good night, everybody. Yeah. Yeah.